Well, I am excited for this next several months. Um, over the last uh, several months, God's been burning my heart in several areas, and we've started to talk about some of those over the last couple weeks. But uh, I'm just going to ask you up front, before we get into this new year too far, is that you start praying along with me to see how God would have you to respond to what He wants us to do, to be, how He wants us to live as a church family, some of the things He wants us to get involved with. And, um, you know, I said for years, and I, I said it in the time of Q&A when I first came to the church six years ago, we had a bush um, in the back of our house in Indiana. And uh, I kid you not, it was in the back corner of my property. And uh, every year I would take a hatchet or an axe or something, I'd go down there and I'd beat it down. And uh, by the end of summer, it was always this big again. I mean, it just thing would just grow. I don't know what, I mean, it's on steroids. I don't know what it was, but I would beat the snot out of it. I would, six inches below the dirt, I mean, I just beat on it. And by the end of summer, it was this big again. It's just, I don't know what was in it. It just kept growing out of control. If I left it alone, it just, and it was ugly. And uh, I kept beating this thing down. But I said, that's not the kind of tree I want in my yard. I want a tree that is strong and healthy and looks good. Um, not in the sight of, you know, perfect manicured yards so everybody can say, ooh, look at us, you know. It was in an obscure spot. But as a church, I don't want something that grows out of control and crazy. I said, I'd rather have an oak tree as a church. They grow extremely slow, but they, go deep, they grow deep and they grow strong. Amen? That's the kind of church I'd rather have. A church that is growing deep and strong and will stand the test, that, that will be forced upon it. And as such, that means that we have to do things that will help it grow that way. And uh, so that's what we want to talk about in this new year is what can we do to become that church that's like an oak tree that's growing deep and strong and uh, a church that will withstand the struggles and the, and the pressures and the stresses that it will be placed upon it in the days ahead. So developing God's love for the lost, part one, developing God's love for the lost. Um, over the last... Um, several months, I've been thinking through these messages and where God would have me to go and how he'd want me to impact all of us, myself included, that his church would be all that he would have it to be. And uh, as I'm putting together these messages and uh, trying to get a direction of where God would have us to go, I'm starting to think, you know, I'm, I'm making these messages now, so one message is turning into three and three is turning into five. And uh, so so I just take these one at a time, part one. But as a pastor, God has wired me a bit different than most. And uh, some of you have known that for several years now, or at least you're discovering that about me. I'm not like most people. As such, like many pastors, I don't walk into the service every week and just, quote-unquote, do church. Um, and go home like most folks. If you know me at all, you know I love Sundays. I love my church. I'd rather pastor this church than any other church under the sun. Um, I've grown to love you all and appreciate what God is doing in many of your lives. I love my church. There's no, no other place I'd rather be than here. However, I'd be lying, as you would, to say that our church is perfect. 
From time to time, God reveals to us through a variety of circumstances that things are not always as they should be. Amen? Um, if you're looking for the perfect church, you'll never find it. And if you think you do, you just ruined it. Um, we're not perfect people, so therefore we're not going to have a perfect church. And a lot of the criticisms that the world places upon us are often sometimes true. We don't like to admit it, but it's often true. No perfect churches. So when God points to those things that are not right out to me as a pastor and to us as individuals, we have a choice to make. We can either ignore what God is telling us and showing us, or we can, with His wisdom and help, seek to address those issues. And I've chosen to do the latter. So over the past few months, God has been trying to get my attention regarding some of the things, quote-unquote, that we need to work on as a church. I mentioned several weeks ago a statement that I heard at a seminar recently is from Johnny Hunt. And he said this, Many churches are busy doing church work rather than the work of the church. There is a difference. There are a lot of activities that we can put on a calendar. And it's busy work. They're not bad things. I'm not saying we shouldn't do them. But if we're doing church work rather than the work of the church, we're missing something. Because really, when it comes down to it, God really lays out in His Word what the church should be doing. And we're going to get into this a little bit later, but what's the church? You and I. We're the church. So we're going to jump on that in just a few moments, but I don't want to really get busy doing church work. I want to do the work of the church. I don't want to do busy work. I want to do life-impacting things. I trust that's your desire as well. So I don't want to be just busy doing work of the church, because there's a really big difference there. And there are several things that we as a church need to address as we come into this new year. So evangelism and discipleship are at the top of the list. And let me just say this as I back up just a little bit. I'm excited when God does something in our church, right? We're excited when God brings in a quote-unquote new family. Isn't that awesome? And we get to fellowship with another new family, and they join our, our church family, and we begin to fellowship together, and we get to know them, they get to know us, and sometimes we're scared of that because they're going to see all of our flaws and what we're, what, you know, what's not perfect and right about what we're doing as a church family. And it's always exciting when God brings in another family. But, hear me, if we grow by nothing more than a family coming from this church to this church, that's not really growing. Do you hear that? If someone is already saved and have a, has a relationship with Jesus Christ and all they do is switch from that family to this family, we're not growing as a body of Christ. How do we grow as a body of Christ? He started off physically back in Genesis when he says, be fruitful and multiply. And he talks about the multiplication process. And then he goes on and carries that in throughout the Gospels. We grow by people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? That's how we should be growing. Not just because we went from that body of believers to this body of believers. Which means we have a mission. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, God said this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Before one can make disciples, people have to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? 
And they have to first enter a relationship with Him. So therefore, before we can even make disciples, we have to see people coming to a saving knowledge with Him, right? So that is one of the reasons He said, Go! Do you pick up on that little two-letter word? I mean, it's a huge word, isn't it? Little word, but huge implications. Go! Or if we look literally in the translation here, in the Greek language, as you are going about. As you are going. So I believe that we as a church as a whole, we've not done a good job of this. And not just us at Harvest Bible Fellowship, but the Church of Jesus Christ as a whole, we have not done a good job of going out. We have pockets of, or periods of time where we did better than others, but as a whole, we have not done a good job of this. Anybody care to agree? Churches all over the country are plateaued or declining. A lot of churches are growing bigger that are combining. This congregation, this congregation, and this congregation have come together to form a bigger church. That's happening. Churches are closing their doors every day. Over 1,500 uh, churches a year are closing the doors never to open again. Why? Because we have failed at going out and sharing the gospel. As a whole, I'm not talking about every individual and nobody's doing anything. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is as a collective whole, we have not done a good job. So we have to address that in our own church. And you've heard me say numerous times over the past few years, the church goes to work. The church goes to the grocery store. The church goes out to eat at their favorite restaurants. The church talks to their neighbors or friends or relatives. The church goes to the gas station. The church goes to school. The church goes out. But here's the thing. The word go has the idea of as you are going about your daily business. As you are going out. So, but as we as a church, the church are going, are we looking for opportunities to share the gospel? Are we looking for opportunities to share the gospel? Are we looking and asking God to open up those doors of opportunities that we cannot open ourselves? Are we looking for opportunities to plant some gospel seed as we are going out? Are we looking for investment opportunities through relationships as we are going? So I want to share a few thoughts as to why we aren't looking, quote-unquote, for opportunities to share the gospel, and really why we aren't living gospel-centered lives. Let me give you five of them. Number one, some people are scared or fearful to share the gospel. Is that real? We're scared. Fearful. What are they going to say? What are they going to think? How will they respond? And we're scared about that. But here's the question I want to leave you with with this. Do I trust God? Do I trust them? Why do I ask that? Because this, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, says, but you shall receive what? Power. In other words, either I trust God that he's going to give me the power and the boldness, or I'm not. Plain and simple. 2 Timothy 1, 7. He's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. We have the tools to go out and do it, but we're afraid. I really trust God that he's going to give me the boldness and the courage and the strength to open my mouth. And here's a good one. And it's, there's some truth to it, but I think it's a minuscule amount of truth, and you may disagree with me. That's not my gift. 
This is not a gift circumstance, although there are people who are more gifted towards it. It's an obedience thing. It really is. And I speak to myself on that. Because there's times that I've been more obedient than at other times. There's been times that I've had all the boldness in the world, and there's been times I've been scared to death. But it really does come down to obedience, and do I trust God that he's going to give me the power, the courage, the boldness to do what he's asked me to do? Some people, number two, feel ill-equipped to share the gospel. <clears throat> I'm just not equipped that way. I don't know that I have the training to share the gospel as I should. I don't really know that I have the training that I might say the right words, and, or I might say the wrong words, and then it might make it worse. I just don't feel equipped. I don't feel like I'm, uh, I'm able to do what God has asked me to do. I just feel not equipped to do that. Let me bring to your remembrance. There was a woman at the well. Remember this? She went to get water. Because that's what you do at the well, right? She met Jesus there. And then the God's word reminds us, as, as we go on through the gospel, is that this woman at the well went on to attend Jerusalem Baptist Bible College. And then she was able to be equipped to tell everybody what happened to her at the well. Right? No. Here's the deal. She simply told others what happened to her. It was really that simple. And you know how simple it can be for you and I? Telling someone else what's happened to you. Am I saying that you don't need scripture? No. God will teach you. God will show you. He'll bring those things to remembrance for you. You'll grow as you're walking with God. Your relationship with him will get stronger and you'll learn some things. But really, it's that simple. I don't think we need a 13-step process. We don't need seven of this and seven or 14 of that and three of this. What's your story? What were the circumstances that God used in your life to draw him to himself? And as you're walking and going out to work, talking to your neighbor across the fence, as you're going to the gas station, as you're going to the grocery store, what's that conversation that needs to be had that you've just been afraid to talk about? I think there's a third reason. Some people are just too busy or have deemed other things more important or of greater priority than sharing the gospel or planting gospel seeds. They're just too busy. We live in an incredibly busy culture. I mean, nobody leaves home without their cell phone and tablet. Nobody leaves home without a list of seven things they've got to do before they come back to the house. We're just busy. We live in an incredibly busy culture. And it's not that we don't want to, it's just that we don't plan to. Because I got my to-do list, I got my agenda, it's got to get done and I'm busy. I mean, think about this. I mean, God understands that. I mean, with kids, the job, social activities, and the rest that we need from doing all those things, God understands, right? I mean, it's justifiable. God gets it. We're just busy. He knows that. So that's okay. He gets it. I wonder if that one will withstand as we get before God. And let me just say once again, I'm preaching to myself here. I'm not just up here going, it's coming back at me because these are my excuses too. Number four, and here's the reality, it's sad. Some people just don't care. Or they're ashamed of sharing the gospel. What does Paul remind us of in Romans 1.16? 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto what? Salvation. I hope we're not ashamed of that. Sometimes we're so afraid of what a complete stranger might think of us. I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. I remember driving down the road, and I come to a red light, and I look over, and the guy's in a convertible, picking his nose going 100 miles an hour. And whoever was in the passenger seat with me is like, look at this. I can't believe he's doing that in front of everybody. He don't care. He doesn't know anybody that's watching him. We're so worried about what other people think sometimes. Are we worried about what God thinks? How about number five? And I think this is a sad reality for a lot of Christians in a lot of churches. Some people have lost touch of life outside the gospel. Some people have lost touch of life outside the gospel. Here's what I mean by this. You've been a Christian for so long. You've been inside the walls for so long that you've lost touch of reality outside these walls. You hear me? All your friends are now Christians. The only people you talk on the phone with are other Christians. The only people you meet to go to lunch with are other Christians. You've lost touch of life outside the four walls. Because you've been inside for so long. Don't get me wrong, there's blessings of being inside, isn't there? I mean, there's incredible blessings. But you can't forget what's outside these walls. We need to be intentional. We really do. If you don't plan to be a witness, it's the same as planning not to be a witness. Does that make sense? If you don't plan to be intentional about it, you might as well say, I don't care. Because no matter how you add it up, it comes to the same conclusion. So the truth of this reality is saddening. Too many of us have lost our sense of urgency for the loss and their need for a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if this is the case, what do we do about it? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is speaking to the church of Ephesus here. Why don't you just pick up on what he's saying here? Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. Boy, if you stop at verse 3, it's like, man, this is a great commendation, isn't it? I mean, if we could just stop at verse 3 and go home, everyone feels good about themselves with a little attaboy on the back, and man, whoa, great church, Ephesus, good job, keep it up. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do, how, do the works that you did at first. Otherwise, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
Verse 7, anyone who has an ear to hear should listen to what the Spirit says to the church. I will give the vicar the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. Notice what Jesus was saying to this church. First three verses, he says, look, I mean, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your endurance. And that you cannot tolerate evil. I mean, what of those things is not a good thing? Let's just for a moment hypothetically put Harvest Bible Fellowship in that. I know your works. I know your endurance. I know how you hate evil things. Great commendation. So he was not yelling at them or, 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 or attacking them for, for the fact that they weren't doing anything. They were doing some good things. They had some good positions. They were, man, they were, they were on top of some things. I think we are too. Anybody agree? There's some things that are going on. It's good. I'm excited about Notice what he's saying here. He goes, I'm not saying you're all bad. I'm not saying that nothing good is not happening. But, he says, I have this. You have abandoned the love you had at the first. He's not saying they weren't doing anything. He's saying something about how they were doing it. Not that they weren't, but how. Think about this just for a moment. If we were to be honest and look at our own lives, and what God has done in our hearts and our lives, and we say, thank you, God, for what you've done. It's awesome. Look where you brought us from. Look where you've taken us. Those are good things. But here's the problem. Verse 5, he says this, and there's three things that we need to do. We need to remember we need to repent and we need to return. But first of all, remember. The word remember here is an interesting word, verse 5. It says, remember then how far you have fallen. This is an interesting phrase in the Greek language. It literally means that you're in a state of decline. You're going the wrong direction. You're not, you start to slow down. In fact, you're starting to get behind everyone. You're starting to just slowly, incrementally drop off. So I ask this question. Have you lost your zeal for the Lord? Have you lost your energy in serving Him? Have you lost your excitement about spending time in His Word? You see, it's like when we first got saved, man, you wanted to be involved. I mean, anybody know people like that? They got saved, it's like the, they got on fire. Anybody ever met people like that? Right. Few years into it, they're like everyone else, kind of going through the motions. What happens? For many, they lose the zeal, they lose the fire, they lose the excitement. When you first get saved, the pastor says, "Oh, we need a nursery worker." Your hand goes up. Pick me, pick me. I want to do it. Five years later, it's like someone else can do that job. PhD in nursery psychology to do that job. No. Pastor says, We need someone to your hand goes up. Pick me, pick me. There's a time that you do anything for God and His church, but now it's more like when the announcement goes out, if it's convenient, if I have time, I guess if no one else will, then I. 
says, remember how far you have fallen. Remember the excitement that you once had. Remember how you used to be, oh, I couldn't wait to get there. Couldn't wait to get involved. Now you're just going through motions. Still doing it, but you're just going through motions. Let me give you an illustration of what this really looks like. Ladies, let me share this with you for a moment. Ladies, imagine that your husband came home and said, I don't love you like I once did. Oh, don't worry, nothing's going to change. I'll still go to work every day. I'll still pay all the bills. We'll still sit together, sleep together. I'll still be the father of our children. I just don't love you like I used to. Would that be good enough for you? I can't imagine that would be good enough for any of you as women. You'd be devastated. Yet we say that to the Lord Jesus, I don't love you like I once did. I'll still come to church... I'll still serve. I'll still give an offering, but you have to understand. It's not like it used to be. You understand, right? See, that's not good enough for Jesus either, just like it wouldn't be good enough for you as women if your husband said that. Is that serious? Absolutely it is. Jesus said that his greatest commandment is to love God. Matthew chapter 22 Verses 37 through 39. We must love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. And if we fail to love him, we disobey the greatest commandment. It doesn't matter what else we obey. If we fail to keep the highest commandment, we have struck out, leaving our first love as the greatest sin. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. What is the motivation for our obedience? If our love for Christ is cold, it doesn't matter how faithfully we serve Him, how rightly we believe, or how strongly we stand. Notice that the church of Ephesus was doing some great things. And yet he says, you've fallen. You're in a state of decline. You're slipping. Dr. Ola at Bible College used to always say, obedience is doing what you're told to do when you're told to do it with the right attitude. Parents, don't you love it when you say to your kids, hey, I want you to clean your bedroom and I want you to take out the trash. And then they sit around and pretend they didn't hear you. I know, I'm not referring to my kids, and I'm not referring to your kids. I'm talking about the nebulous today. They're out there somewhere. Not here. But you've told them to clean their room and take out the trash, and they just sit there. Did you hear me? Oh, I'll do it. Half hour passes. An hour passes. Two hours pass. Did I, did, I, did I tell you to take out the trash and clean your room? I will. I'll get there. And finally, you blow your stack and say, Do it now! They gr- Let me ask you a question. You might have coerced them to do it by threat of life or bodily injury. But did obedience take place? Because obedience includes your heart attitude. Our motivation for obedience really ought to be our love for God. So he says, remember. 
not only what we used to do, but I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. I think we need to remember what God did for us. Think about this for a minute. In your mind's eye, go back to the time that God drew you to himself. Go back to the time when you placed your faith and trust in him and you started that relationship with him. Think about that for a moment. The fact that God... Think about that. Allows you and me to have a relationship with him. And just for a second, think of where you'd be if that weren't the case. We don't like that thought. We don't like that thought, do we? We'd all be spending eternity in a lake of fire. A place called hell. We don't even like to say that word. Sounds disgusting coming off our tongues. We don't like to think that. But that's the reality of life apart from God. We need to remember that. And remember what God did for you through Jesus Christ on the cross. And remember that when you gave your life to him, and you placed your faith and trust in him, and you started that relationship with him, remember how you felt. What God did in those circumstances. But he doesn't just say remember. Second thing he says in verse 5 is repent. The word repent has the idea of doing a 180. I'm going this direction, and I'm confronted with the truth. I realize that what I'm doing, what I'm doing is wrong, what I think is wrong, and God challenged me and convicts me over that, and I change, I do a 180, and now I'm going to go this way. I'm turning my back to what I know is wrong, what I know I shouldn't be a part of, what I shouldn't have in my life, and I'm turning my back on it, I'm doing a 180. That's repentance. So here's a question. What happens if I don't? Just throw that out there for a minute. What happens if they don't? Jesus is saying, remember, repent. But what happens if we choose not to repent? God says it very clearly. I'll remove your lampstand. Well, what's that supposed to mean? That's just kind of code for that the church is going to be any longer. <laughs> Done, gone, over. Consider this just for a moment. I believe this eventually happened to the church in Ephesus when Islam invaded Turkey and wiped out Christianity in Ephesus. There's no church in Ephesus today that we know of. Nor much of one of the modern cities nearby. The country of Turkey, where all seven of these churches were located, is more than 95% Muslim. Today it is a mecca of false teaching and unbelief. What is true in Turkey is also true elsewhere. Hundreds and thousands of churches close their doors every year throughout the world. That's a fact. That's a fact. Christ has removed many, many lampstands over the centuries. And this is serious. No love, no light. The church that loses its love will soon lose its light. No matter how doctrinally sound they may be. We need to repent as a church 
and the church is made up of individuals, if we're not in love with God, if we are in a state of decline, and we can remember a time that we've been closer to God than we are now, we need to repent. I've had people tell me, well, I used to teach children in church, that's someone else's job now. Kind of conveying the idea that I've graduated and I'm beyond that now. Really? Okay. Am I advocating that there's never a point of change? No, I'm not saying that. But we do got to guard the attitude. I'm not doing it anymore. I put my time in. Really? Hmm, I wonder if Jesus Christ had that attitude, how that affected you. No, you know, I did this once. I'm sorry. I'm done. Someone else's turn. I'm over it. How does that fly? If we can remember a time that we've been closer to God than we are now, we need to repent. It means we're in a state of decline. We need to get back. And then he says, return. <laughs> remember, repent, and then he says, return. Where, where do I get this? Well, look at five again. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent, and here he says, and do the works that you did at first. Get back to being in a place of service for the Lord. Get back to walking with God in fellowship and obedience and do whatever he asks you to do, whatever it may be. One thing I've learned over the years is that there's a lot of things that I cannot do. There are the things that I don't want to do. We all have those. But there's a lot of things I just, I don't feel like I'm very good at it. I just don't. I'm not gifted in certain ways. You see some of that every week. There's a lot better, a lot of other preachers that can get up and, whoa, that's a great message. It's not me. Bottom line is this. We need to get to the place where we are dependent on God, giving us the strength, the power, the ability to do what he's called us to do, rather than our own thoughts about our gifts or the lack thereof. If we're counting on our own abilities, you're doing it in the flesh anyway. What is it that God wants you to be doing? I don't know what that may be for some of you. But if you can remember a time that you were serving and now you're not, shame on you. I was talking to someone last week in the foyer, and I said, so how many more years till you can retire? And he kind of looked at me and says, I don't believe in retirement as a biblical thing. And I, 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 I've never heard other people say that, but I agree with that. I want to work as long as God gives me the ability to work. If there comes a point where I can't, that's one thing. But I don't have any, I don't have any, I have no idea of quitting. We couldn't quit, we shouldn't quit spiritually either. Retool, refocus, retread, change directions a little bit, but don't stop. Could jump on that whole James 2 thing for a minute and faith without works is what? Non-existent. You need to get back. Start acting like you're a child of God again. Once again, he's not saying that this church in Ephesus wasn't doing some good things. They were. We're doing some good things. 
Maybe. But are we doing the things that God wants us to do? Return to doing the works that you once did. So, can I just say this in conclusion? Before we ever surrender to the Great Commission, before we can ever disciple, we have to go. But before we ever go, before we ever disciple, before the Great Commission becomes, comes the Great Commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because love is the basis for our obedience. And if I don't love God as I ought, I'm not going to be obedient to what he asked me to do. It starts with a vertical relationship before it goes horizontal. It has to be that way. I have to love God first. And that's what he says over and over throughout the Gospels. If you don't hate father or mother, what's he saying here? He goes, you need to love me more. Do you love God more? Do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Or can you remember a time that you loved him more? Can you remember a time that you were closer? Can you remember a time that you were more in fellowship with him than you are now? Then I think we need to repent and get back to that. And do you remember what you were like when you first came? Maybe for some of you have heard your salvation testimony, you felt like the weight was lifted. Man, I'm now free. Not under the bondage of that sin anymore. God's taken away those sinful addictions and he's allowed me to live a life of righteousness and holiness. And you remember what it was like to come to a knowledge of Christ. And you wanted to share it with others. But all that has waned. You need to repent, come back. Return to doing what God has called you to do. And to be him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the example that we see here. Thank you for the very fact that we can come before you in your word that challenges us. I ask God that you continue to work in our lives to draw us closer to you. Lord, thank you for the example of this church of Ephesus, Lord. It wasn't that they didn't have some good things going on. It wasn't that they were completely disobedient. It wasn't that they didn't hate evil. But they were in a state of decline. They were slipping. They left their first love. God, I pray that you'd work in our hearts today. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed.